The Gun Dog Notebook Podcast is presented to you by Onyx Hunt, crafted to be the number one digital mapping resource for hunters, anglers, and landowners. Download the Onyx Hunt app from your phone's app store today and use my promo code GDN20 for 20% off your Onyx subscription. If you want to get the most of your dog in your training sessions, you need nutrition that holds nothing back. Yukonuba's new premium performance lineup is built with the nutrients dogs need to help unleash their maximum potential. That starts with providing energy that matches their efforts, supporting optimal nutrient delivery, and supporting post-exercise recovery. Check out the new Yukonuba premium performance lineup and find your dog's fuel at yukanubasportingdog.com all right and i also want to say thank you and give a special shout out to my newest sponsor aya fine guns a fine shotgun is itself a work of art as individual as its owner why choose an aya well Every AYA gun is handmade uh, by our master gun makers with meticulous attention and precision. Each constituent part is carefully shaped and little by little, the parts come together until a perfect hole is created. Barrel, action, locks, trigger, stock, foreign. An AYA gun is a marvel of gun making engineering, a coming together of perfectly fitted and calibrated parts to ensure an unequaled experience with a reliability and longevity which defy the passing of time. Choose AYA today. All right, and then one of my last title sponsors, Trinity Kennels, Trinity Bretons. Um, guys, thank y'all for for those who put deposits down at Trinity Bretons. I've y'all have reached out to me and let me know how how convinced and, and confident y'all are in their breedings um, of Epignol Bretons. Um, at Trinity Bretons, they strive to raise, train, and produce and reproduce all that are excellent uh, representations of the breed, both in field and confirmation over the past 30 years. They've continued to study, learn, and implement all that they can do into their breeding program and philosophy, as well as their training program. Um, it culminated in being awarded the National Elevage winner in the 2020 CEBUS National Conclave and Field Trial in South Carolina. So check out Trinity Batons today, guys. Thank you so much. And of course, I always want to thank my, my affiliates, Lion Country Supply, Dakota 283 Kennels, and Garmin Fish and Hunt for always supporting the podcast and and. and just being again role models and leaders in this community and and really bringing bringing new products into the world upland world by storm so thank you guys as always and i'm looking forward to getting into this podcast second occasion now um of, of of being up here at hollywood plantation and i just want to get the entire the entire story and everything that you do but all of your contributions to your community number one you're god-fearing man and you have done a lot um honestly very similar to what i'm trying to do with minority outdoor alliance 
um, with your church. But I thought it was cool. We're sitting right. That's my dog. We're sitting right in front of um, your house. And Michael told me a story about how one of the original owners, and you'll have to correct me on details, and three freed black women stopped General Sherman from getting to this house by burning down the bridge. Actually, it wasn't this house that they were trying to get to. They were trying to get to Dublin. But, uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's... Uh, that's a that's a neat story. It was that was being my great great grandfather Duggan, mm-hmm. and uh, and he was a doctor and a physician, James Duggan, and uh, and yeah, he. It's a neat story. Um, they uh, they stopped Sherman's brigade that was trying to get to Dublin, and right at the bridge, I forget the name of the creek, but uh, there's a mill there called Chapel's Mill. Okay. And uh, and so they they made like or pretended like there was a Confederate unit there, and uh, and they set the bridge on fire and they opened fire with they didn't shoot anybody but they were shooting. Okay. And the Union cavalry turned around and went back. That's cool. Okay. Yep. Um, and that would have been that would have been as Sherman was making his way through Georgia. In 1864, uh-huh. 1865, somewhere in there. It's cool. So, I guess that story is kind of cool to me because I'm born and raised in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Sherman came and burned the entire city down. Yeah. And so, this place was one of the few places in Georgia that didn't get touched. Right. This house was built in 1850. It's mm-hmm. classic antebellum home, six columns across the front what they call a four by four, four rooms down, four rooms up, with a detached kitchen and dining area and a detached, well, that was a detached food preparation area and dining area and detached kitchen, which was that yellow looking building you saw out back, we call it the smokehouse. But that's where they they cooked all the meals Mm -hmm. when the house was originally built. It was originally built in a field and there were no trees around it. You got a bunch of magnolias. And so all these massive live oaks and big magnolias were planted when the house was built. So they're all 150 years old too, Uh, 170 years old now. And so, uh, and all the wood that's in the house to build the house came from the river swamp uh, back up here. And those columns, those six columns are oak, one inch by 24 inch solid boards that go what? 24 feet 25 feet in the air so yeah it's a I mean it's beautiful <laughs> it's an old place it's been in my family since 1917 now in 1917 you guys were in the logging business my great grandfather Geddes my grandmother's father mm-hmm. uh, bought this property in the early 1900s uh, the house was empty at the time. Uh, it, the previous owner before my great-grandfather was a doctor. And you saw his little office over there to the side where he saw patients. Uh-huh. And the original owner was a guy named John Chapman. And, uh, and John built the house for his second wife, I think. Who lived here for about 20 years and hated it? <laughs> how do you hate? Hold on, how do you hate this place? How do you hate this when you see it? Like I wish that listeners could be here. It is, it is the quintessential what I think Georgia home is. It's an old antebellum style home. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh huh. But anyway, she didn't like it. They sold it to the doctor. The doctor lived here for 30 some odd years. He died. 
and then my great grandfather bought it and fixed it up and and he raised his family here uh, uh, my my grandmother was raised here my father was born uh, here and my aunt and, uh, and my great-grandfather had uh, 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 four sons and a daughter and the four sons got the majority of the land holdings okay. and the daughter got the house okay and my grandfather was a farmer a dairy farmer and uh, and then began and he was a big bird hunter too he loved to bird hunt and one of my favorite memories as a child was uh, was walking with my grandfather who was six three yeah long-legged man yeah. and he could stroll yeah and uh, he and the mayor of Jeffersonville, a man named Mr. Dave Califf, uh, would, would quail hunt. When I'd come down here, I could go bird hunting with them. I couldn't carry a gun, but I could go with you them. You could go with them. Now, they were running dogs or walking? Oh, yeah. Well, they were in dogs. What'd they have? They had uh, mostly English setters. Okay. But uh, my grandfather had a big pointer that was a big English pointer. That, and I've forgotten that dog's name. I want to say his name was Jack, yeah. something like that. But uh, <laughs> classic pointer yeah, name. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, anyway, that was a great dog, and uh, he had. A, we had a couple of English setters, and uh, and so anyway, that's what we we did. Well, I I like that because as I do a lot of research and just you know my I guess niche within the whole bird dog world. I guess I'm very interested in dissecting southern culture and our traditions i mean there's a lot to work with here um and what i like is that you guys started off as farmers which means you guys would have had to work your way right on up the ladder mm -hmm. to get everything that you have here and i think that story is amazing but it's contradictory to what's assumed about the south if yeah. that makes sense no, that's very true um, my grand my great-grandfather uh Geddes, uh Started out at the bottom and, you know, working in the mills and made enough money. And then he found out that land was available here in Georgia in the early 1900s really inexpensively. Right. And uh, so he started buying land and he started a little lumber mill here in town and built his first house, which is another house in town. He built it himself uh, when they first moved here in 1911 and out of the lumber that he he milled and so when he found out about this house he was he was able to get it and excited about it and and so there was never <laughs> my father used to always laugh that we're land rich and money poor <laughs> uh, we had a lot of land but not much cash and so the farming and timber management was was really how we we lived back then you know people didn't have big life insurance policies back then and there was no big estate to, to pass on it was just it was land and timber and right. and so that's what we've tried to do is to maintain the land i have three goals for this property and you've heard me say this before number one that it stay in the family mm -hmm. number two that it be economically viable in mm -hmm. other words nobody's got to come out of their pocket to take care of it and number three that it be as enjoyable as possible to as many people as possible in other words we can't enjoy it there's no point in keeping it because yes. it's not going to make us a lot of money there's not enough land here there's 1400 acres here and uh which sounds like a huge amount of land but it's and but it's enough to take care of itself yeah and uh that's that's really what we what we want uh is to to take care of the land well i think you are living up to all three of those of those objectives first and foremost um 
And that was one of the first things that you said to me. So I want to kind of talk about, you know, some of the the work that you've done here as we drive around. Yeah. Um, you've also got some markers on some pretty old trees as well. Yeah. Um, and I want to kind of dive into that. Um, I also want to talk about your kennels. Mm. You know, but all in all, I mean, as we, you know, proceed with this journey, I'm I'm learning a lot from you. No, you're going to teach me more, I'm sure. Oh, well, <laughs> then it'll be an exchange. Now, this is also something I wanted to show you. Um, I just, when I say I'm learning a lot from you, I'm dissecting this book here. It's the Tall Timbers oh, yeah. Bob White Quail Management Handbook. Yeah, I've got that. What do you think about that? I think it's great. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's some phenomenal data and phenomenal information that... Uh, if you have phenomenal resources, you can do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Timber management for quail uh, is not a, uh, excuse me, timber management for wildlife habitat development. The two are almost mutually exclusive in today's environment. Today's timber uh, management practices best what they call BMTPs or best management practices for timber would almost preclude habitat development for, for, for wildlife. Really? It would almost make it impossible. So how do you work both of those on this property? You sacrifice maximal timber production for okay. wildlife development. Right. You'll see places out here where I don't have anything growing. Okay. And that would just drive some people nuts. Yeah. That you don't have you got that much fallow ground and I've, I've got probably 30 acres yeah. of just fallow fields right now that we're in the process of developing uh, better habitat for some 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 edges, some field borders and mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Some uh, some just nastiness. I've had people look at these longleaf pines that you can see straight out there. They're all yep. grown up kind of thick and they go, man, you need to mow that. You need to herbicide that. And I go, mm, no, not yet. Yeah. I, I realize it does need to be done, but I'm not in a big rush for that. Eventually, we'll rake pine straw under that 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 particular stand, but but not right now. Right. Because raking pine straw, while it's very cash productive, mm -hmm. you make a lot of money raking pine straw. You you sterilize the ground. Right. There's no rabbits. There's no deer. So, Turkeys like it, but that's about well, it. Well, they can walk on it, but then, then you're getting rid of the insects. You're getting rid of all the things that right. quail need. But the, what this thing, what this prog program, this, this uh, Tall Timbers Bob White Quail Management Handbook, and they've revised this thing several times. The first one I got was paperback and about a quarter inch thick. Wow. Uh, this is really, really nice. I have not seen this particular one. Yeah. But... Uh, I've met Clay Sisson okay. at Reggie Thaxton. Both of them have been up here and looked at this place and looked at how we how we do some of the things we do. We really? Went to the, we went to their field day 25 years ago at Itchaway Plantation. Oh, man. So, you know, I first started. Did we get in the, con in the, in the conversation about the dog man at Itchaway, Charlie? I've met Charlie. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. You told me about him. Yeah, and Charles your relationship Parks. with him. Yeah, yeah. He's um, yeah. he's that. I, he told me they've got some immaculate practices there. They do. They yeah. do. But it's a yeah. research facility now. Oh, they've got the money and the resources. That's right. Yeah. Um, I heard a, 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 a older guy, older black dude. I cannot remember who told me, but basically told me that. 
managing a plantation um, as far as strictly for quail, mm-hmm. you're it's it's a money pit. Yeah, it's a money pit. Now you do it for the love of it, and like you said, you have the resource. People have people that are doing this have the resources to do it. What I also like is the conception that, or I like to disprove the misconception that there is kind of a the private and and and, and public land mm-hmm. practices are exclusive of each other and they're not a lot of the private land practices like clay system coming up here and studying your property mm-hmm. help what they're doing on public mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know um but you also told me you planted those pines at birds where i got it yeah <laughs> they, how long but, ago was but that see, they sacrificed that too. oh shoot that would have been 83 84 okay Okay. Somewhere in there. Yeah. Whenever we got in the pine tree planting business. Okay. That was in my previous lifetime. When I graduated from college in 1980, I graduated with a degree in agricultural economics from the University of Georgia. Okay. And my dream was to to make a living farming. But all I did was prove my master's thesis that uh, a, a farmer with gross farm income of less than a million dollars wasn't going to make it. Wasn't going to make it, yeah. And uh, there wasn't enough land here to generate that kind of revenue farming. Okay. And I was going to have to lease more land. I was going to have to invest in chicken coops or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just, I couldn't, I, that wasn't, that wasn't for me. I, and and I, I love the cattle business and I love the hay business and I love the row crop business. I got dirt between my fingernails. I love it. But you just couldn't make a living doing mm-hmm. it. So I went back to school, got my MBA and have been in business now ever since. But, but, uh. But I came here to farm, and uh, we, among other things, we planted pine trees for other people. Okay. And uh, through a, a mutual friend, I got that job of planting pine trees at Burge and uh, Fox, 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 Fox Hall. Fox yeah, Hall. that's in Douglasville. Matter of fact, yeah, where I yeah, live at. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Fox planted, Hall Sporting Club. Yep, planted those. So okay, uh, that's cool. So yeah, it, but it, you said they were giving up. They were giving up something. You well, they're giving up. They're giving up timber production. If they've got 35, 40 year old trees, yeah, those trees should have been clear cut yeah. because they're not growing much now. They'll grow, but they're just not generating timber value. Right. You got habitat value. I'm, you know, we're looking right through there at some thirty. Those trees were planted the same year my son Michael was born in '88 so, mm-hmm. or '87, and uh, and so they're those are 34-year-old trees. Yeah, and that's where we hunt right now mostly. But uh, pine beetles, wind damage, uh, uh, lightning strikes. Lightning got three or four trees out there this year, and every time you lose a tree, you're losing several hundred dollars mm-hmm. that you're not going to grow back. You're not it's like you're shot going, at that point. Yeah, yeah. It's completely blown. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, I if you sacrifice timber revenue for habitat, and you have to be willing to do that if you're going to have both. And I have always, always erred on the side of developing wildlife habitat because that's what I enjoy, mm-hmm. and that's what my son enjoys. It's what my grandson, who's only five, mm-hmm. he's, he's a cool little dude, though. Yeah, he is. <laughs> He, he, he's a cool little dude. He loves being here. I've yeah. got a great picture of him in the back of the Polaris right here after we'd had a dove shoot. Yeah. He's in the back of that buggy with just a pile of birds. You know, they've had 16 or 18 guys here, and all the birds are there. And it was it's so cute. Just a good time. Oh, heck yeah. I, but they love this. And my, 
My daughter and son-in-law have got a son, and, and I know he's going to love to hunt. Uh, mm. My son-in-law has done a great job training a German short hair. Okay. And uh, and he loves to hunt. He guides down here sometimes for me and or with me. And mm-hmm. uh, and we 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 want it to be a family endeavor. Right. And and we so we, we're looking at generational fun, just like my my favorite picture of me and my grandfather and grandmother was right there on the steps of that house when I was about three. Really. And. And, uh, Can you, you still have it? Oh yeah. Can I see office. it later, it's, like when we get? It's in my office at home. But I'll send you a send picture. Send it to of, me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I want to see that. Black and white photo of the three of us on the front porch of this house. No, it's all generational, and so I want you to be able to bring your son. Yeah. To hunt. I would love to. And uh, and so I'm I'm thinking out. Every tree that we plant, those trees across the street there were planted when Cole was born. So they're six years old. Uh, used to could find wild birds all along that really? that edge there. So they'll come right on up out of there. And as long as those trees are there, oh, yeah. they'll come right on up out of yep. those woods. Yep, yep, yep. Now, my, my other question, what is the... There's been a lot of, spec, I guess, speculation. But what is like the... the native range for a cubby of quail here i've heard as far as four miles i've heard a few couple of acres i've i've never gotten a dead on answer i don't know that there's a dead on answer outside of heaven but uh, <laughs> but i know yeah. that uh i i know that birds where we've uh, clear cut mm-hmm. uh, or first thinned or second thinned pines over my lifetime i'm 63 or will be this year in my lifetime i've seen trees clear cut planted back and the quail covey of quail that always sit on top of the hill right there you could always find them by the old well mm-hmm. trees grow up when they're 15 16 years old you can't hunt those trees right. thick as hair on a dog's back right you first thin them go back got a little habitat around there Covey's back. They'll be right back there. Now, where do they go in the meantime? I think they go to the woods. I think they don't go far. Okay. I think they go to the woods, and they're just impossible to hunt because they're in the range. This place is called Hollywood, by the way, mm-hmm. because of all the native holly trees on the property. It was mm-hmm. named Hollywood in 1850. Okay. So, so that wasn't a thing for you, that y'all said? Mm-mm. Okay. No, no, no. That it was, was named Hollywood in 1850 because of all the native American holly trees That's cool. here. And so, you know, holly berries are wonderful quail food. Oh, yeah. Well, all these draws and all these bottoms are full of holly trees. Mm-hmm. Well, that's where the quail go. Yeah. They've got cover and they've got feed. Mm-hmm. And that's what you have to have to have, stay up have quail. You got feed and you got cover, you'll have birds. Well, I, I noticed that you've got some really smart wild birds out here for that reason. Um, they don't really I mean when they when they flush they flush hard and they flush it's beautiful but they make you work because of the way that the cover is it, it kind of encases them they'll make a dog really have to get in there and, and get to pointing them before they get up yeah at least they gave my dog some business last time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I like that though. I yeah. mean, it's yeah. that to me is natural. Yeah. You know, to to the the nature of hunting. We have tried various methods of 
developing wild bird populations by bringing in chicks, mm-hmm. the incubator type stuff. We tried all that. All we did was increase our predator population. Yeah. And and so what we found and what we're doing now, you asked me a couple of weeks ago how many coveys we got, and I, I think I told you that I believe we've got 18 wild coveys okay. on 1,400 acres. And I don't know about the 150 acres across the creek. So yeah. we still, though, that's yet that, to that be may determined. be there may be at least a covey or two over there. Yeah, but there's 18 coveys around, and you can find them sporadically. That when y'all came down here and hunted here, and I told you go here mm-hmm. and park there, and you'll find the birds here. Mm-hmm. I was praying real hard. <laughs> well, you were right. So I was right. You were right, and the Lord delivered. I, so. didn't, I didn't know you were going to be able to find that covey. I told you there was a covey down here in the ditch, and, and it was you found there. them there. Yeah. I told you there was a covey back here, and you found them there. That's just real unusual. Yeah. But uh, but we had scouted, and we had kind of known it. And we don't push our wild birds hard. Mm-mm. We don't shoot them hard. Mm-mm. I mean, this is we do release bird hunts. Mm-hmm on some ground and we try to isolate our release bird hunts to just a few small areas and every now and then those release birds will call those wild I was birds I was going to say what do you think the relationship is between those released and the wild and how often do those release birds actually survive how often do you think they do not much uh, okay not much I think they do but not much now isn't it a thing where the release birds, like the hens, don't have that instinct to yeah. to like reproduce or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Dallas uh, Ingram, who was here uh, yep. two weeks ago, yep, uh, biologist, with the Georgia yep. Georgia Bob White Quail Initiative yep. uh, with the Georgia Department of Wildlife Natural Resources Division. Something. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> she's she's sharp lady yeah. and very smart. But she said, and I believe this to be true, the hens will lay eggs, but it's it's just a rare bird that will sit on them. Yeah, they'll lay the eggs and walk away and keep on moving. Yeah, um, I see that a lot. You know, because I've, I've got training birds at home and stuff, yeah. and a few of them they'll drop a couple of eggs here and there, mm-hmm. but the eggs are just kind of rolling around in the in the, the coop they, yeah. they don't actually nobody takes any responsibility for them you go back to our quail house on a warm day like this they yeah. dropping they really? dropping eggs today okay yeah and they and they just they have no accountability for them no they just kind of sit there no. okay and I it's I think it's just the breeding yeah. you know it's just they're these birds are bred in captivity raised in captivity they don't know anything well else. They, don't, they have no reason to think about survival right Right. They've got no reason to. Right. Um, Did you see our quail house when you were here before? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. It's beautiful. Simple. It's bigger than the house that I stayed in when I moved in from college. <laughs> bigger, than <my> first, <laughs> bigger than my first house, too. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, those birds would live in a whole lot better than I would. <laughs> you didn't have free choice food either. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I had a, it was a, I, uh, I had a, a couple of real, 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 you know, close nights where I was glad that the hunting season was in and I could go out and <laughs> give me something to put on the on the table. Um, you know, I, I've had a couple of those nights. But anywho, let's let's go see the kennel and I want to talk about your dogs. All right. Um, you know, now you didn't ask me about the Jeep. What is it? Is it is this an FJ? It's an FJ four. Okay, FJ four. It's a seventy six model and. Uh, Got it from a fellow over in uh, Marshallville. Okay. Uh, Perry 
between Perry and Marshallville. And he was getting one of those uh, big fancy, they made them for a while, they called, they called Pearson bird buggies. Uh-huh. It's on a suburban frame. I, I read about one of those in, I think, um, one of my older books. But yeah, they were using those a lot in South Georgia. Yeah, really nice, really nice wagon. This FJ's got a dog box that I rebuilt in the back. Really? And, uh, uh, and it's just a platform, bench mm-hmm. seat above, and so. You got, what, four, four slots for guns? Mm-hmm. Four slots for guns, four dog boxes. I can put more than four dogs in there if they're small. Yeah, okay. And so that now are you is this your main the 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 main guide buggy or do you alternate how to you're talking to the guide bird boy dog handler and buggy fixer <laughs> I, I i do it all so you're the one-stop shop I, yeah it's this is what we hunt off of mostly we got a polaris ranger that i've got a aluminum dog box that i can put in and take out of that right that's a good size box and, and it's a it's a handy tool okay um you know what? You know what I wanted to ask you. Um, I'm curious to know about what you thought about the dogs from way back when you were coming up, and the dogs now. Do you think there's a difference in the breedings or anything? Because I got to talk to you about pedigrees and stuff last time. You like, look, I just like a dog that, that hunts. Okay. Yeah, I, you know, well, I've never studied bird yeah. dog pedigree that much. Here's the way we bought bird dogs back in the day you knew a guy who had a good dog who had a good litter okay out of a good dog and you had a pretty good shot at having a good dog out of it and you took the dog out and if he hunted that was great and if he didn't well he became a pet right okay gotcha so this was never this again was was something that um my buddy and I, we talk about all the time is like I don't think down here in the south the emphasis on pedigree I think that's a new innovation I think that's a new thing that people are discussing yeah. I mean and I'm talking to you know dog men down in south Georgia they were kind of like look we got meat dogs we, we, we wanted a guide as long as the dog had a nose on them yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we were cool well and that was the most important thing you wanted a dog that could Stay with you, number one. Right. You want to dog that to find the birds, because this was before GPS collars. Right. So now, what were y'all doing? You just kind of eyeballed them, or you put bells on them? No, you watched them. Okay. You just watched them. You okay. Know, you, actually, you have a whistle uh, to call the dog in, and uh, the dog knows the whistle. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, two toots means look at me and turn. Right. Four toots means come back. Okay. One long tube says, stop, what the heck you're doing? <laughs> okay. <laughs> you got to get your attention. Right. And uh, and so that's kind of the way you worked them. And so you did not want a dog that was going to go way half big. a mile from you. Yeah, yeah. You didn't have any way to, to hunt a dog. In this part of the country, Yeah. you mostly hunted on foot, and you were hunting hedgerows, mm-hmm. and you wanted the dog to stay close to you. Well, it's interesting you say that. So we had the meat eater folks down here, yeah. and I hunt... <laughs> A little bit different than just even that, because I sing to my dog. I holler at him and send my voice through the woods, and that was how I learned from the guys down in Thomasville. Mm-hmm. And again, it, it was a way to keep tabs on the dog, because again, you you can lose a dog in a piney woods in a heartbeat. Yeah. Um, and it was a way to keep them 
Like when I, it, it was a way to keep them within a few hundred yards, and I mean on the lower end of a few hundred yards. Yeah. Um, I like my dogs ranging. If I'm guiding 200 yards max, but I got one in my in there, my female. When I told you how big she runs, you look you looked at me like, what in the world? <laughs> she is yeah, 600 like, yard dog. <laughs> yeah, I can't I can't imagine having a dog on the other side of that yeah. field. But again, that's that's GPS technology. Yeah, though. Yeah. That that's the benefit of having yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, again, the old days you wanted a dog to find birds. These two on the end. So what are these? These are two short hairs. hairs. Okay. They came from a kennel in Kansas. Okay. And uh, I can't even remember the guy's name. I, I, I'm embarrassed. I can't remember his name. Super nice guy. And to be honest with you, I bought those two dogs because of <laughs> the way she looked. Had okay. nothing to do with pedigree. Yeah, you just liked it. But I had lost uh, 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 a big male that... I just broke my heart when he died and uh he was 10 11 years old and it just just happened yeah but uh i needed another dog and and she was a puppy she was only like 12 weeks old and this is brown right here no 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 the, the, the female other on the other side okay and uh white yeah, tick. Yeah, yeah she looks a lot like your dog but you see how muscular she is mm -hmm. she is muscled up okay and uh uh and strong as an ox. Too. I like that. But uh, anyway, I need. I wanted her. I knew I was going to have to train her, and I didn't train her. God did. Yeah. She came. She hit the ground knowing what she was doing. Right. And then the big male next to her was a Finnish dog, and and I, and he was a just stylish looking dog. Yeah. And uh, that's Hank, right? Yeah, Hank. Uh, Hank will cover a lot of ground on you. Okay. But, uh, but he and eats. Good Lord, he eats. You <laughs> see what he done to his kennel? <laughs> he turned it around. No, he didn't turn it around. He ate the door off of it. Oh, I did not see it. So where I'm standing, there's a uh, this pole right here. I did not see he ate the door off of it. That's, that's a short hair for you. That's an aluminum kennel. That is a short hair for you, okay? Dude. This dog ate the door off of it. He okay. Just, he had a wooden house. He ate it. I think he swallowed it. Wow. <laughs> okay. This dog ate the door off of this kennel. All right. <laughs> I want to... My wife is going to get a kick out of that one. Okay. This is Essie. A little, another short hair. Essie is another short hair. She's old. She's she's coming 12. Okay. But I actually hunted her yesterday. She still goes. Yeah. She's got cataracts, and but she knows that whistle, and she'll turn on, come back to me. She backs, points, retrieves. She kind of, she trembles when she points. She's okay. A, she's a fun dog. That's cool. That's cool. And this is Gordon. This is a Gordon setter. Now, how this was an interesting story, how you, how you got this. Yeah, I got him from uh, uh, a buddy of mine who runs a plantation down on the east coast of Georgia, and he has a bunch of Hispanic guys. Yeah. And this dog wouldn't have anything to do with him. Yeah. And so he couldn't keep him. <laughs> yeah, he just, the dog just didn't like running for him. And he won't run for my son, and he won't run for my son-in-law. But he'll run for you. he work for me. Okay. He'd do it all for me. I, I It's a pretty dog, man. Jump up in my lap. And then the one on the end is Pete, and he's a, a, a Brittany Spaniel that is just a gorgeous little dog. Uh -huh. He's three years old and dumb as dirt. <laughs> So, uh, what's I'm, his deal? I am keeping him just to see if I can, how good a dog trainer I can be. Okay. All right. But if I can make a dog out of him, I can make a dog out of anything. Anything. I don't think there is a hunting bone in that dog's body. If he's got any genetics in him, maybe I can bring it out. I don't yeah. know. But 
right now. He he started out good, and then mm-hmm. he's just stupid right now. He's going through a stupid phase. How old is he? He's three. Uh, that's about right. About right on time. It's time. He, he'll it's, level out. It's time. This year, it's either this year or he's going to somebody's house. Okay, that's so fair. he was a gift. He belonged to a friend of mine who said he had gotten too crazy for him. Yeah, and uh, and so I just said, well, I'll take him. But anyway, we don't have but five dogs. We got a kennel big enough to hold nine. Now, how how long have you? When did you build this kennel? 1990, I think. This was an old house site, so there was an existing septic tank right there. Okay. And all we did was run the drains to the septic tank. Okay. And so, so this it made house sense. Is my age. 1990. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, so it's a it's a good place. It it's sits beautiful. up high on a hill, so they stay cool in the summer. It's a little cool in the wintertime on a cold day, but this is Georgia. It's not that cold. It's anyway. not that, that bad. And yeah. It, yeah. Mine stay, you know, outside and all kinds of yeah. stuff like that. And unless it gets terribly cold, which it seldom ever does, yeah, they're good. Yeah, you know, yeah. they're good. All right. Well, this is nice, man, and I I I just like how how spacious it is i mean it 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 looks good and all of the dogs are comfortable Mm -hmm. um and all of them working you got a favorite uh of this bunch Uh uh-huh um Jen down on the end. Okay. First dog we were talking about. Uh-huh. And Scotch. Okay. That's and Gordon. It'd be, he, he, Scotch, if Scotch would retrieve better, he'd be my favorite. I think Jen would be my, my favorite. Sorry about that. Now buddy. you got whiskey, though. Talk oh, about whiskey. Uh, whiskey. Whiskey's special. <laughs> whiskey's special. He lives with me. He stays with me. He stays, goes to the office with me at work. I mean, whiskey is a decided pointer. Uh-huh. He's a Labrador retriever. Yeah. But he decided that he liked upland hunting better than water because he really doesn't like to swim that much. Right. He like he'll do it. He'll retrieve ducks. But right. I had a guide out in Arkansas ask me one time, said, "That dog don't like water, does he?" <laughs> and I, he, yeah. he he'll retrieve, but he just he's just not he's not passionate about mm-hmm. ducks. Now out here, oh yeah. He'll He's all about it. Yeah, you won't lose a bird with whiskey. Yeah. I never lose a bird if if I have him with me. Yeah, and he stays within 25, 30 yards of me wherever we're at. The bird dogs will point. He'll ease in and verify. Mm-hmm. It won't be a false point if he verifies you've got birds. He'll also find wild birds better than these dogs. Really? He works so slow. Okay. He's more, if, you have a, if you have a reasonable idea that you're going to find birds there, mm-hmm. he's so careful. You can see him throw his nose up in there and like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then he'll start just weaving. And then when that head comes down, yeah, he's got him. Okay. He's got him. I need to get out there with Mr. Whiskey. Picks down. his foot up and everything. I did not teach him. All style. All style. Flat tail to tail up. Uh, Flat, mostly. Okay. Flat, okay. mostly. He'll put it up. He'll put it up sometime. Most time it stays stays flat. Hey, if he does the work, well, he's a big. He's a hundred pounds of dog. He's not hard to find. You have a one hundred pound pointing lab. Yeah, and an effective one at that. Yeah. Okay. Now you brought some guys down here. Did you say from Italy? Like that he cooks in the morning before you guys hunt? Well, he's Italian. He's not from Italy. His family's okay. from Italy. Okay. Uh, but he he brings people down here. Uh, customers of his, and then he cooks in the kitchen and makes a, an incredible meal. God, it's just a diet. Really? Okay.
mushroom encrusted steak. Before y'all hunt? Oh, no, no, that's lunch. Uh, <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> no. But he makes, uh, there's a there's a thing called suprasat. Uh-huh. I don't know what suprasat is, but it's like a, a very fine, thinly sliced meat that's seasoned a certain way. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. On crackers? Yeah. That's our mid-morning snack. Oh. I, 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 I met him briefly last time he was here. Yeah. Um, that's cool. So, give give us an idea where we're heading now. What, where are we? What area of the property? We're going to ride through. Uh, we just going to go down <laughs> the main road of this property we call Hollywood Boulevard. Okay. And it pretty much bisects the property. So, you've got bottomland hardwood to the right, bottomland well to the left. And, uh, We'll go past uh, some lonely pines that have been first in. We first thin them heavy. Very bad genetics trees. Georgia, what do you mean by that? Well, when the state of Georgia, federal government came out with what we call the Longleaf Initiative, right? And they they gave uh, great incentives to people to plant longleaf pine instead of live volley. Okay. In this part of Georgia, live volley is predominant. Uh, because it grows well in the soil, it's it's uh, it's just good, good right. growing trees. You need, you need more sandy soil for a longleaf, generally. Yes. Okay. Yes. okay. Generally, and I'll show you some young longleafs back in the back that are growing in some deep sand that are just exploding. Okay. It's incredible how well they're growing back there, but and they were better genetics. But these trees had forks. They just they just they were crooked. They, Makeup like whatever's the in the density of the needles around the see, there's one right there. Yeah, that's a natural reseed long leaf. It looks like it's been burned up. You see it all brown, yucky looking. Yeah, but if you go out there and look, the bud in the center of it is dark green and healthy. Wow, you okay, you can see all those baby natural reseed coming long right on up, and so they'll come right back. They love a fire, and so from a from and you a, guys recently just burned it. How long ago? day four yesterday oh wow okay yeah we just burned that and and part of the reason i burned it is because it's got a lot of debris out there and i want to clean it up and make it easier to walk but the other thing is uh it's just weed development and uh 
and and seed release like right. uh, your lespedesias your partridge peas that kind of thing that need to be scarified yeah those seeds are out there but they won't germinate until they're scarified well that burning melts the wax coating off the seed now that it's clean rain will come seed and soil contact happens sprout okay and this field will look radically different next year after two fires this is the second year we've burned it wow and so after two fires you will just be blown away by how this place looks okay. it's going to change and also burning takes away some of your bad weeds mm -hmm. like that dog fennel i don't like that dog fennel it'll take that away and uh and it'll enhance things like ragweed your your partridge peas obviously that's a much desirable uh Beggar lice, what I call it. What's the proper name? I call beggar it lice? beggar's lice. Beggars, beggars, I, beggars. I, I, I've always called it beggar's There's lice. There's another proper word for it, but it's a, you know, it's a Is great, it potter's pea? No, that's different. It's a great wildlife feed, though. Right. And we've got a ton of it out here. Right. To our left, we're looking at 33-year-old loblolly pines that probably should be clear-cut. But we we bird hunt out here, right? And I'm holding these until this track gets finished. And when I get this looking like that, then I'll be ready to clear cut this. But I won't do that until do this is ready. Right, so real quick, take a break and think about estate planning on a much larger, much grander scale. Definitely something that would be in consideration for a great place like a Hollywood Plantation. Anyway, my wife, Ashley, is going to update you guys on some things that we got going on um, on her end that are, you know, definitely key to keeping somewhere like Hollywood Plantation up and running for generations to come. So I will let Ashley take it from here. What you thinking? I'm thinking, hello, everyone. This is Darrell's better half. Uh, we were just talking about legacy and legacy building and as you all may or may not know I'm a tax and estate planning attorney here in Atlanta um, while I enjoy both of my practice areas I enjoy tax law and I also enjoy estate planning estate planning is actually my favorite because I like to do a lot of myth busting a lot of people think that you have to be wealthy to have an estate plan and that is simply not true each and every human being should have an estate plan you know, I tell people if you've earned any money or accumulated any assets, you have children, you should be the one to decide what happens to your money. You should be the one to decide who's going to watch over your children if something happened and you were not here. Um, so I really like to sit down and have conversations with people and just to make sure that it's just another level of security, another level of planning, um, another level of, um, of, of securing your legacy. Um, I like to, to just sit down and have conversations with people about what they would want things to look like if they were not here and to let them know that, that we have instruments and things that we put in place to make sure those things can happen. So um, if you have any questions about estate planning, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at my work address, which is Ashley, my first name, A-S-H-L-E-Y, at Atlanta, where we live, tax and estate.com my two practice areas so it's all one big long word ashley at atlanta tax and estate.com i look forward to hearing from you guys okay bye um okay so you've also got we're coming up here your ski ski course i didn't know if y'all came back here though. i hadn't come back i saw it because we found birds on the other end matter, matter right, of fact right. um 
Now, how long have you had this course up here? Uh, a guy named Marty Fisher. You know who he is? Where do I know he Marty got Fisher a from? Show, uh, but he was, and I don't know whether he still does it or not. But he, uh -huh. he hooked us up with Auto Sporter. Okay. Out of Canada, and they made these these skeet throwers, and they have been fabulous. And they were one of the first ones to do solar powered skeet throwers. Really? And so. We've got a wobble and then a low and a high house, and the wobble trap's got two batteries, so you got two little batteries. And that's those little platforms top. right there. Yep. Mm -hmm. And then the, you know one battery on each of the others. I want to so, see that. Yeah, it's pretty simple. <laughs> do you think that's a? Um, do you think that that's like a something that's going to be more longer term? Is is these solar powered? Well, I tell you this, uh, we put this in, I think Michael said it was 2004. Okay. I guess when we put this in, so 17 years. And I'm on, uh, I just put in those batteries, that's the third set of batteries. In 17 years? Mm -hmm. Wow. And we shoot a lot. We shoot a lot. We shoot a lot. It's getting harder to justify it when you can't find shotgun shells. <laughs> We need to do a show on that. <laughs> well, we need to. Um, I think everybody's at a loss right now because of this whole economic whatever we have going on. Um, so trust me, I get it. I, I one thousand percent get it. Yeah. The, the company went out of business. I, 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 I won't. I want a rabbit. I want a teal. I want some other throwers. Mm -hmm. I just haven't bought them yet. So there's no one else that's that's. Is anyone else still doing the, the solar panel thing? Is this yeah, yeah, all yeah. one oh, yeah. company? No, okay. they're all doing it now. Okay. I think gotcha. all of them are doing it. But I think Autosporter was the first one. Okay. What's crazy is those panels are that old. I've never done anything to panels. I don't even clean them. No, they just sit here. They just sit here. That's perfect. That's perfect. And and we all of, this is a five-stand place, and all my shooting houses blew away in a tornado, but those stag on solar panels. They're still there. They sit right there. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the new the new wave. The tornado blew a tree down on top of my shooting house, my storage room there, and, and uh, don't think there's anything in it. That's funny. So, yeah, it. Uh, that is hilarious. <laughs> all, said, these, all these things were just gone, but the solar panels are there though. Yeah. That is funny. Well. I oh wait, stand right here. So before I before I forget, got to make sure. We know who we're, we're we're talking to. Cool. Give the long hair. You're gonna have to let me talk about the long hair. Well, what what's the story behind the long hair? I thought the long hair is cool. Uh-uh. Yeah, my my hair is supposed to be short, brother. I ain't, I ain't had no. Hair. You got I ain't had hair this long since I was in I was in college. Well, and I was totally rebelling against my father back then. If he, <laughs> if he were alive today, he would have shorn me by now. Really? But so uh, what 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 happened? Did we just? Get... You no, know, when COVID hit, you know, okay. they closed down all the barber shops, and I said, well, I tell you what, I'm not getting a haircut till I can go back inside the church without a mask on. So you. Uh, that's fair. That's fair. But then you you got one now. You got you can go now. I can go to church, but I still have to wear a mask. Okay. So you're just gonna ride it out. It's when, been a year now. When I can go 
to my church and worship without social distancing and without a mask, yeah. I will get a haircut. So you're gonna you're gonna go back in with like the Jesus cut. Then you're gonna have the long hair. You'll have the beard. I'm telling you, you go go back in. I'm. You know what Michael says about the beard? He, I didn't have the beard until we were going duck hunting. I just uh-huh. had the long hair, and my son hated it. He said, "You dad, you got you just, you just look." Hard. I'm a fan of the long hair. And and so then I grew the beard. He said, "Dad, you know the beard kind of makes you look not stupid." <laughs> I can see Michael saying that too. You look not I can stupid. See. So it's been what a year since you've cut it in at least. Yeah, February last year. February last year. And it was shorn. I mean, I had a number one. Really? Yep. My vote is to keep it. I say keep it. What does your wife say? Is she protesting? She's not been awful. She uh, she actually pulled it back in a ponytail the other day. So, so I didn't show you. Well, before we came down here for the meteor, I had a fro, like a big fro. Did you really? Yeah, I cut it. I had to. I had to give in. I was doing the same thing, and I said, uh, I think it's it's about time. It got to the point where wearing a hat became a. See, I can stick it out the back. <laughs> See, I can't do that. I can't, I can't do that with a fro. I, I you know, kind of can't pull that back there. But I had a whole. My wife was like, "This is the longest I've." I've ever seen. Matter of fact, it had been so long since last time I cut my hair. My son had never seen me with short hair. He's four months old. But when I cut it, he gave me the weird eye. Yeah. Yeah. He had never. He had not seen it because I hadn't cut it. Well, my um, grandson gives me the weird eye. About the beard. <laughs> he doesn't like the beard. I think you should. I think you should do it. Keep it. Even after the mask. Let's see. I think you should. I think you should. Um, pardon my crazy nasty loud dog he's just been hollering the whole time she ready to go hunt well we're gonna get her we're gonna get her out in about 20 minutes yeah i'm we, gonna ride back here and show you uh you know, just talk about quail management habitat yeah. and that kind of thing we're gonna see a couple of different other stands of longleaf pine okay and uh uh and actually we'll see three different ages of longleaf pine here and there, you'll see some loblolly pine and uh, some different generational status. And that's one of the things we try to do, Darrell, is is, uh, manage our pines so that we've always got between 50 and 100 acres to cut every year. And we're either first thinning, second thinning, third thinning, or clear cut. Okay, now when, and that starts, I guess, around this time. Uh, it depends on what you're cutting. If okay. we were doing a clear cut, definitely we want to do it as early in the year as possible. Okay. So that over the course of the summer, it has an opportunity to re-sprout. All your uh, natural reseed pines will re-sprout. Okay. And then you'll herbicide it, burn it, and then replant the same this time. Like we just planted some this year. Okay. Uh, so, and then what, what comes after that? What's the next? All right, first thinning is between 14 and 16 years. Okay. So I've got a stand back here. It, it's, it's been they're 14 years old right okay. now. And so we're going to first thin that. And uh, there'll be 15 in December of this year. So we're going to first thin that, that, that stand of Bob Lollies. And that's beginning to open things up. You know, once you start first thinning, start getting a little bit more sunlight to the ground you get some weed growth and that's what you're looking for right and then first thinning and then second thinning where do we go from there third thinning second well back up second thinning is uh first thinning is all cold wood 
second thinning is pulpwood and chipping saw. Okay. Just a little higher grade of wood, you get a little bit better money for it. And then third thinning, and, uh, and if you do a clear cut after third thinning, all that's typically saw timber. Okay. And uh, your highest price wood. But see, once a tree gets to 35 years old, its rate of growth is really slow. Okay. You're not producing the tonnage per year. So that's like the adult tree at 35 years old. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's it's fully mature. It will continue to grow. That's why you see 100-year-old pine trees that are 125 feet tall. Okay. Just not, It's just not growing at the same rate. It's just not growing as fast. You're not producing the tonnage per year. So the most efficient production of pines is really pulpwood. Okay. And that, there are people that grow pulpwood in clear cut after 14 years to plant back. Okay. They just stay on that cycle alone. Yeah. Okay. And but see, I wouldn't do that because that's not going to ever generate much wildlife. Right. Now, speaking of generating wildlife, and you were you were talking about predators coming in. What's your worst predator? I guess your main predators out here. Uh, the one that's most visible is the hawk, red-tailed okay. hawks. What about cougars hawks? Uh, we see a few, but not many. Uh, there's one that stays right there in front of the dog kennel. He's been right, yeah, right in front of the third house. <laughs> he he knows where the food is. He knows where the birds whistle. Uh huh. Right. Uh huh. So uh, yeah, uh, but no, those are the ones that are visible. But bobcats uh, uh, are particularly hard on on, on quail. Uh, now, are you trapping those out here, or are you just? Not now. We have not had a bad problem with bobcats since we trapped hard a few years ago. Okay. And we had we had a, just a really successful run to the point where the guy said, "I can't catch anything anymore." <laughs> and so okay, we, we quit. So you had a guy, you had a trapper come out yeah. here and do okay. Uh, but we never have trapped coons much because we don't have really much coon habitat. Right. Coons can be horrible on quail. We don't trap possums because we haven't seen that many possums. They're here, but we just haven't seen that many. Yeah. And I know possums are really bad on quail nests. Mm -hmm. But there can't be too many of those predators because that's so many wild turkeys. Right, right. And our wild turkey population is ginormous. Right. And it just happened. Okay. Um, and and it, they, they're just a natural deterrent from the quail. Uh, the, the wild turkey population? Yeah. No. Wild turkeys are proliferating at such a rate there can't be a whole lot of nesting predators. Okay. If there were, we wouldn't have the wild turkeys we had. Gotcha. Just to, does it, that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, a lot of nesting predators basically, you'll have more than one than you would the other. Yep. It's, yep, not, yep. it's not ever even. Yep. Okay. Right. Gotcha. Now, I, I some my, of those pines that we can first in right there. These the early ones. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, my other question: Are wild turkeys bad on quail nests, like eggs and stuff like that? You're not asking an expert there. I don't. I really couldn't okay. tell you the answer. I've, to that. I don't know the answer to that. I the, don't think so. Mm -hmm. I think the biggest thing wild turkeys do, and you can see it a little bit here. You see this natural timber bottom yeah, right here? Right here. You can see why it's called Hollywood. You see all the holly trees. Yes, sir. But you see how open the ground is? Uh -huh. That's from turkeys feeding. They open it up. Uh, and so a lot of your okay. would-be good nesting and feeding habitat for quail now gets opened up and predators can get to it. Gotcha. Okay. Particularly hawks. Well, and I, I was I was curious because every time I during the season, 
I jump a bunch of turkeys in quail habitat. Yeah. On public land. I don't think it's. A, I don't think they are mutually exclusive. Okay. Nor do I think they should be. Okay. Uh, I, but I, I'm not an expert on turkeys. I don't like ticks, chiggers, or rattlesnakes. So I don't turkey hunt. I don't either. I've. I would like to turkey hunt more, but I got so many ticks last year, man, when I did it. Um, I'm not a fan of rattlesnakes, and that is a big problem down here. Um, do you you get a lot of rattlesnakes here? Okay. All right. I, I was always curious about we've that. Act, we vaccinate our dogs for rattlesnakes. You ever had one bit? No. By the grace of God, I haven't. Okay. But I've seen one miss a good chance. Now... Uh, how talk about that rattlesnake vaccine? Is it expensive? Uh, it's $50. Okay, so not bad. No. Not not bad. If you've got if you've got if you've got rattlesnakes, and, and particularly German short hair. Yeah. Bless their heart, they love to stick their nose <laughs> in a hole. They like to stick their nose in a hole. I don't yeah. know why. That's what they bred for. That that tracking man. Yeah. So now, all right. As far as the vaccinations. Is it a preventative or is it something that you you've seen it like? Keep the dog from dying if it gets bit. Okay. Dog's gonna get sick. Gonna but it swell won't swell up. But it won't die. But you you don't have to take it to the vet. Uh, you might should take it. I think you should take a dog to the vet every time he gets bit by a snake, just to be sure. Just to be sure. So you were saying um, we have not found a, a, a vaccine for moccasins, water moccasins. Not that I've heard of. Not that I've heard of. There okay. may be one, but not that I know. Now, are they as deadly, though, to a dog? Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, what about uh, copperheads? Same. Same thing? All no, right. No vaccine. And, yeah, yeah, I think one of those is worse than the other, but you just don't want a dog to get bit by No, nah, you, you fundamentally don't. Um, I've met guys that have differing opinions where they're pretty much like, if my dog get bit, well, I gave him the vaccination, and they just cross their fingers, and hope nothing happens um, and other guys are like look no go to the vet and obviously the safe answer is to take them to the vet but I just wonder with that vaccine how lethal is it how much of a red alert Rattle, are we on no rattlesnake it, like I said I don't think I think if you vaccinate the dog the dog likelihood of dying from a, a rattlesnake bite is much much lower okay uh, and the dog will get sick it will swell but what I understand skin will if you if yeah they'll if they don't die the skin is just it just sloughs off yeah it just looks horrible yeah so that's a, a defense technique or so or no i'm sorry not a defense it is a defense technique but it's it's a way for rattlesnakes to basically make their job easier yeah and something about the enzymes or something basically helps die helps them digest their food again you're into a Area of science. Nothing about <laughs> that, that's about the most that I know about rattlesnakes. I, can, is I know it breaks I can down tell to you help about them. pine trees, but that's about yeah. it. Yeah, well.
where we rake pine straw, mm -hmm. what we're looking at right now is some three-year-old longleaf pines yeah. that we can rake straw under in about two years. Okay. I mean, we'll be raking this. We might can rake here next year, honestly, uh, a little herbicide, but that's that's not quail habitat at all. Now, this is 20-year-old longleaf pines, and we're raking this now, and and uh, revenue from pine straw is a lot better than re right. revenue from timber. Okay, but, but by how still, much? Like, what is, what are the prices like? Uh, it varies depending on the part of Georgia you're in and who rakes it, what kind of management practices they do. The group that we use right now, uh, they do all the management. They mow it, they herbicide it, they they pick up the sticks, they do, you know, everything. Okay. I, we do nothing out here. And they pay us about $250 an acre per year. What? Per year. Per year, wow. And it, I mean, okay. that's, that's, you can't make that in the timber business. No. Unless you're following everything just right and you're in the best market and Georgia doesn't have great timber markets anyway. Okay. Except for maybe Southeast Georgia. They, they do pretty well. Middle Georgia, we, we get hammered. We just don't have a really good timber market. How has quail management practices changed and, and, and environmental practices changed since you started? Any big major differences? You seen anything? Because like, let's say Herbert Stoddard, right? Some of his stuff, was, or most of his stuff was pretty spot on. And I think that's pretty much the model of what people are using. But was he wrong in anything? No, again, I go back to what I said earlier. I think what Stoddard and others, particularly those involved with the Bob White Quill Initiative and all those, they're all giving great advice yeah. for developing habitat. And I think it has evolved because they realize that people who, landowners like us, we've, we've got to be economically viable. Mm -hmm. So there's got to be a balance. So one of the things, we're riding along here and there's a hedgerow right here. It's an ugly, nasty, gnarly, thick This is what I edge. go look for for birds. And you got privet, you got some kind of berry trees, you got a few pines, you got just vines and ugly nastiness. And there's rabbits and quail. There's a covey of quail on this ridge all the time. Right. Always has been. And my dad, you mentioned habitat. My dad wanted everything really clean. He hated this. Okay. He said, that's nasty. I said, well, that's, you can't have pretty uh -huh. and have quail. It's got to have to be nasty. Uh -huh. He said, oh, I want it cleaned up. I said, well, I don't. <laughs> I, want, I want the quail. <laughs> so you, he was all about the money. And I'm not, I love my dad, don't get me wrong. But it, that's not productive ground. Right. You've got to sacrifice production. Do you think that. Hedgerows like the, that. Okay, so now let's talk about the generational differences. You've got these plantations, let's say further south in Georgia, where I think a lot of those, you know, owners were more like you in that they wanted to quail. And a lot of guys that are coming in there inheriting it in this land, you think that they're more concerned about the money, more like your dad. Yeah, yeah, 
Could be. Okay. Could be. Okay. Uh, there's, there's this there's this thing in the United States called a real real estate investment trust. You know what that is? Uh-uh. It's called a REIT, real estate investment trust. Okay. There's a bunch of big ones around that own a lot of timberlands. Some of them are neighbors of ours. And uh, all they care about is land appreciation. Land's got appreciating value and productivity on the land. That's all they care about. Wow. And so if they get hold of a tract of land, that's why private land ownership is so critically important. And I think you might've heard Dallas Ingram talk about the fact that in Georgia, Georgia as a state has the highest percentage of private land ownership of any state in the nation. Not federal lands, not real estate investment trust lands, private landowners, which is what we are. We're a family. We're a family partnership. I'm the general partner. My two sisters are the limited partners, and and so we, all we care about is generational land management, keeping the family, keeping it productive, enjoyable. I told you all that already. Yep. So, uh, but that we you you got that. There's a tension there. Yeah. And so when you get those, if, if this property were put into a real estate investment trust. They would say, can't make enough money hunting here. It's not big enough to do this, not big enough to do that. Best thing to do is plant it in pine trees or cut it up and sell it in small lot landowner type places. Mm. Uh, I cried last year. I still grieve over this a little bit. We sold a tract of land in Lawrence County last year so that I could buy that land across the creek and so that we could remodel the house. And I sold that land. It hadn't been in the family a long, long time. Not like this place. Yeah. But it was family land, and, and I hated to sell it. And the people that bought it cut it up in pieces. And it was a 400-acre rock that we've been managing just for pine, just for timber. Uh, there was a guy who leased it to hunt on it, and uh, and he loved to hunt there. And that's all we did. We managed it wildlife. It. Oh, yeah. They, they, they cut it up into lots. And so I don't know what's going to happen to it, but I cried when that happened because I. Yeah. But if you're not in it, they're they're in it for a different reason. Exactly. Let me take a photo of this real yeah. quick, if you don't yeah. mind. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think that's when we talk about traditions. Um, when we talk about like maintaining traditions and what the interest level are with people, I, I'm fearful of that exact thing where younger generation has no attachment to the land attachment to the habitat attachment to the wildlife the birds so on and so forth and they just kind of like ah screw it let's just make a lot of money well and then it's not sustainable you just gut the land and 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 then it's done and then what does it become a subdivision or something like that golf course you know that's that's the thing that you know, makes me fearful. You've got three, two, three-year-old pines to the right, two-year-old pines to the left, and 33-year-old pines in front of them. 24-year-old pines behind that. So. Okay, wow. Night and day difference. Well, I think it's kind of cool. Now, you teach your grandson about the differences in age, and 
yeah, it's kind of cool. Like my grandchildren all have their own tracts of land. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So like this is Briggs. He's two. Okay. Across the road is Cole. Charlie's got a track back there in the back. Yeah. It's three. So. And they, and they take and ownership then, of and it. And then uh, and of course the trees that we just planted all the way in the way back, those are uh, those will be uh, Helen Elizabeth's. Okay. She was just born last week. So. Well, that's cool. Yeah. So everybody's got their own tree. <laughs> and, uh, that don't mean they keep them, but that, that you know that's. That's what we call That's it. That's what you call it. Yeah, name them after grandchildren. Got to have a lot more grandchildren. Well, you better tell them that. <laughs> I, I think Michael and Marsha are done. <laughs> I think I, I when I talked to Michael and Marsha, when I told them that we had our two, yeah. and they were like, "Look, we we get it. We understand. It, ah, we get it. Those little ones are are interesting. But no, I would love to bring you know my son and daughter. I just let them run around and. Enjoy it, you know. Yep. They need to see stuff like this, especially them them being kids growing up in Atlanta. They're not really gonna see a lot of this. Um. Okay, you got your peas right there. These food plots up in here. Mm -hmm. All right. Little uh, little uh, grain sorghum yep. planted in this uh, power line bottom, and uh, we're, you've seen fire break. We're getting yep. ready to burn. We'll cut this into quarters, cut it into four quarters, and we'll burn half of it and leave the other half. Okay. So, uh, in addition to you managing this entire property, um, you also own, you're part owner of a brewery? Yeah. Tell me about that. Very small part, but yeah. Uh, about eight, nine years ago, 10 years ago, gosh, time goes by so fast. A buddy of mine heard about this uh, brewery in Atlanta that was going to get started and uh, they were looking for investors and he didn't even drink beer and he said would you, would you taste this stuff and see if it's any good <laughs> and I said holy cow that's incredible can I invest yeah. so make a long story short uh, I invested a little money into it and then a little more and then a little more over time and, and when what's it called again wild heaven wild heaven wild heaven craft beers wild heaven brewery now okay wild heaven craft beers in the beginning but uh, uh, we we make a, a great number of uh, craft we've got some really great guys genius yeah. guys who uh, who create uh, just amazing taste. Well, that, I'm gonna be up there. You let me know where it is in Atlanta. Well, we've got a we've got on the west one on the West End Loop. Uh, okay. You know, right over there near I-20. So you know, um, I grew up over there. Yeah. My grandparents are over there. Okay. Yeah. Well, so. Monday Night Brewery is mm -hmm. right there. You've heard of them. I know. Wild Heaven is right next door. You're less than you're less than five miles away from my granddaddy's house. Awesome. So I'll be there. Okay. Uh, the original site's over in Avondale Estates. Okay. And uh, uh, on the east we, side, yeah. Yep. Decatur area, Avondale yep. Estates. So, yeah, that's it. All right. Well, check, check I'm gonna be there. I am a historically by blood a natural light man because of my granddaddy. There you go. Um, but I'm a craft. A craft beer guy, you know, when it's when it's at my house. Um, well, there's two kinds of beers. The real. What's the, what kinds is that? There's craft beer and cutting the grass beer. <laughs> I, I agree. Understand natural light. I agree. I understand I agree. natural light, but it's like you know that's cutting the grass. That's beer. cutting the grass beer. That's just man. I gotta have. We make one mm -hmm. that I think is the best 
light drinking beer I've ever had. What's it called? Emergency drinking beer. <laughs> I'm not kidding. It's called it emergency drinking beer. It comes in a beer. yellow can with a black label, and then on the side it says contents beer. <laughs> All right, I'll go get it. It's a pil- I, it's a pilsner like uh, like Miller Lite, uh-huh. but uh, it's a really easy drinking. It's got a little citrus flavor to it, and when you're hot, yeah. Oh, all right, this, this, that's, that's gonna be awesome. dog training beer for me. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I took some to my my duck hunting friend out in Arkansas. Yeah, he had a fit about it. He loved. It. I'm, I need to get on that because I. Uh, uh, until then, I was I was drinking y'all's competitor, Sweetwater. Oh, I love Sweetwater. That's good. That's good. I uh, good, good product. I, I'm you know I'm I'm natively a Sweetwater man, but now I got some something else to drink. Oh yeah. Now oh, I got something else. Well, to drink. Atlanta's blessed to have a really 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 good craft beer. Oh yeah. Community. Oh yeah. And that's a, that's a huge blessing, not just to Atlanta but to the state of Georgia. Yeah. And it's a testimony to the creativity and inventiveness. Of people who saw a need, saw a market, and said, "We can do this." Yeah. Well, Atlanta's filled with that. I think it's become a new creative metropolis. Sure. Um, and a lot of that influence still comes down to Middle and South Georgia. You know, you yeah. see a lot of that crossover. Um, I think there's the misconception that Atlanta is kind of a standalone kind of city. It is so heavily influenced by ex- outside factors. Because the trail, the, the 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 train. When I think about the railroad and everything, everything comes into Atlanta, shipping and, and all of that stuff. So, um, and it's so funny. There's instances of quail culture in Atlanta. It's it's the most interesting thing in the world. You'll kind of see it on signs and all of that. So, I um, I just like the South for because we're also business savvy and creative at the same time um that was that was kind of a big deal now you also mentioned doves now is that just a byproduct of doves uh no we're we're just wrapped up with doves this this place being tall timbers tall pine trees great roosting area tons of feed for them yeah there's doves I was gonna that say don't necessarily migrate through here. We do get migratory birds, but we are just we have a tremendously large dove population. Okay. Okay. Uh, we the hardest problem with having a dove hunt here is that it's just hard to congregate them because <laughs> you've got to have everywhere. an incredible food source for uh-huh. them. Like you, you grow so you grow sunflowers and you mow that field. Yeah. They're back there. Yeah. But you better get them when they're there because they'll eat them up and be gone. Yeah. Uh, same thing with grain sorghum or wheat or something like that. Uh, anytime you, they have a lot of food in one place real close by, they'll pour in there, eat it, and be gone. Okay. Because there's so much feed just out. Right. And that, where you see that burned ground, yeah. they love that. And Really? Be, so oh, they like those feeding, burns? They'll be feeding in there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so it, it, I mean, I see a whole bunch getting up out they're there. Out there, out there, yeah. Um, you see these strips? Yeah. You got long leaf, fallow ground, long leaf, fallow ground, long leaf, fallow ground, long leaf, fallow ground. This is one of those places where somebody would look at this and go, that is a waste. But see, I'm trying to develop 
deer habitat. Mm-hmm. Not for me, but for the guys who love to hunt deer. And we have grown some big deer here, mm-hmm. and that's good. But I'm mostly trying to develop wild bird habitat. On the far side, I left unburned, unmowed. I just left a buffer between this and there's a paved road that's our property line. And I left that buffer for two reasons. One is nesting habitat. I know they're going to be there. Yeah. Two is there's been one, two, three wild cubbies of birds along that road from the, from the corner of 96 to up there, what I call the big oak trees. There have been three wild cubbies of quail that have run that side. And I know they're there. I found them this year. Yeah. And I want to keep them around but draw, I want to draw them this way. So I'm going to plant some stuff out here that's going to make them want to, to come out, this to way. Come out uh, along this edge. And so that's that's my dream. That's my that's my goal. But how, it is, how long have you been working on that? This, two years. And I say two this, years. okay. Two years. I've had, I've had the vision of doing what I'm doing for two years. Okay. Uh, because I, I know... I know it can happen, and Dallas Ingram's going to come up here and spend a day with me and tell me what to plant <laughs> and how to, how to so, plant it. So y'all already worked that out then? Well, she hadn't, we haven't set, set a date yet, but okay. we can get her here. That, I, I'm going to have her um, on the podcast to, to talk a little bit more. I was really impressed with her knowledge, and we didn't get to I talk was, as much as I would like. Well, she taught, did, she showed me how to age quail. Now, that's interesting. Yeah. How do you do that? So you you go in and you open up, and it's for males and females. You open up their wings, uh-huh. and there are these little tiny feathers, like inside of the flight feathers. Uh-huh. The the long they're these little tiny ones, and there's a kind of a white tip. Huh. And if they've got that white tip, they're less than a year old. Wow. If they don't have the white tip then they're over a year old. Now you can't tell like two, three, you know, I mean, not that they live that long anyway, but it's not a specific thing. You can just tell whether or not they're over a year or under a year. How about that? Yeah, and she, um, I have my, I'm pretty sure I have my notebook. If I do, um, or if we get a quail, I'll show you where it is. Cause it's, it's, it's the most distinct thing once you know what you're looking at. I'd love to see that. Yeah. That's neat. It, it's, it's really cool. So talk about where we stopped now. Well, we stopped right in the middle of one of our, one of our main quail courses. And this is, uh, you know, the big, big tall pines, tall timbers. And, uh, it's been burned multiple times. Uh, it, it, believe it or not, my father used to rake pine straw under these trees until they were 20 one or two years old and uh and so it was clean it was i mean habitat less yeah nothing out here and uh and so um and so these trees have been first now second thin they've been second thin they i am probably going to give them a third thinning okay and take out um some of these trees you look right there there's a tree that probably doesn't look sick to you but you can see the top's a little bit thin and it's loaded with pine cones uh-huh. that tree is going to probably die so you don't want that many pine cones yeah it means that tree's going to probably die okay and so there's a few others depending on the light it's easy some of them are harder to see than others we need to go on and take those trees out because they they got sick mm-hmm. uh and they're they may not make it another year so we probably come in here and take out about a third of what's standing in here okay won't affect the habitat much uh and and it'll open up 
it'll open up more sunlight. I was ooh, that was my next question. Mm-hmm. I wanted you to talk about the importance of canopy. Yeah, right now we probably at a, we probably at about a we're probably at somewhere around a. 35 basal area right now and I'm going to bring it down to about a 25. Okay. So that means 25% of the ground will be shaded at any point in time. Okay. We may be at 50%. So more more sunlight than less. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And that more sunlight's just gonna make your make your native grasses grow. Make, you know, you look out. It's hard to see, but there's there's a ton of baby partridge peas right mm-hmm. out there. That when we, you know, that that's just gonna come back, and okay. it's just gonna get better and better and better. And you can see over there, that's tall partridge peas, mm-hmm. and there's more sunlight that gets to that particular area, and it's just <laughs> partridge peas just explode. Just coming up. So there. great, great habitat. Mm-hmm. Got bicolor lespedesia planted along there. That's good good uh you know escape cover uh, so do, do you have an issue with spear grass Mm-mm. anywhere okay not to know not here i i, I thought that might have been more of a northern kind of yeah deal. it would be more up around fescue areas yeah. okay um i know that was for a lot of bird dog guys particularly during the summer you know that's kind of a a, a, a concern um my guys in Thomasville have a spear grass kind of yeah. problem. Not a lot, but that's why they wear those white gloves. Yeah. Run a hands in a dog's mouth and, and pull out the, the spears. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but you don't want them to swallow it because then you got a, a real big problem. Um, okay. This is cool. I think this is probably the most textbook habitat it really is and 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 we're blessed to have about 200 plus acres that look like this mm-hmm. and uh in in three different tracks or four different tracks and you've seen i think you saw all four of them yeah uh, and uh, uh we've driven through two of them today but we got that long leaf track that i'm hoping in another two years will be pretty close to getting to where this is okay and uh and then that's the whole that's the whole idea is you want to try to keep a balance so you have to have a vision so i know those long leaves at the end of this you know three or four years from now that's not going to be huntable you won't be you can't do anything so right. those young pines that we rode through back here won't be anything that over there won't be able to do anything so you got to keep right now it's great but mm-hmm. you know it's going to go away so where are you going to where are you going to hunt how do you where's your habitat going to be because the birds will move to where food and cover is right they'll be where the food and cover is and so you just have to keep developing otherwise or you have to decide i'm only going to hunt or you have to decide i'm only going to timber manage but see i can't afford to only hunt (laughs) yeah Unless, oh, I forgot. You're paying me a lot of money to be here. I am right. paying you a lot of money. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. <laughs> maybe, maybe I can't. No, I, I, you have to decide. And so we're, we're doing, we're trying to do a balance. And okay. So we're always going to be juggling where's next. And Michael, my son, uh-huh. eventually will manage this place. My grandson will eventually manage this place. One mm-hmm. of them. I'm assuming it'll be cold, but I don't know. But uh, one of them will manage this place. And the whole idea is to train them how do you manage the balance. Mm-hmm. And and uh, I don't know the answers. but uh, Now, are there years where I guess the scale tips one more so one way than the other? So maybe years where you're not hunting it as much and 
you know, is there a decision there? Or years where you kind of like, well, maybe we're ahead in the, the timber management part and we can hunt more. Yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Short answer, yes. There's, there, there are going to be years where where uh, you're going to have to say, hey, we got to back off. Okay. One thing or the other. Or maybe the Lord enables you to, because again, we're looking for cash flow to, for management. Right. And so <clears throat> we rarely cut hardwood timber. Rarely. Almost never. Okay. But if timber, hardwood timber prices get high enough, some of those hardwood timber bottoms have some attractive hardwood in it that yeah. would be uh, fetch a nice price if the price is good. So we're kind of watching it. Okay. And if that happens, we'll have a big flow of cash. Yeah. But we won't have to cut anything the next year. We okay. Can, we can wait. We can enjoy a little bit more habitat. We can adjust. Or... <laughs> Maybe pulpwood prices go through the roof and a stand of of pulpwood trees that you thought you were going to only second thin, or you're only going to first thin. Well, now, if pulpwood prices are that high, I wouldn't clear (laughs) Yeah. And start it over. Yeah. Well, then that changed your whole habitat plan. And that habitat that you thought you were going to have out of that place is going to go away. Okay. So you're making a timber management decision one way, you're making a quail management decision the other, and you just have to... You, you, you play, you watch the economics of it and try to take the best counsel and advice. I'm blessed to have two really good consulting foresters who live nearby. Okay. I'm blessed to have relationships with uh, a number of wildlife people who have given me good counsel. And uh, and so and I've watched other other landowners. There's a guy down at Hawkinsville who does a great job of managing his land for wildlife and timber. And uh, he's been a family friend for a lot of years. And did did really you, you kind of model some of his practices? Absolutely. But I don't have the I don't have the cash that he does mm. to do some of the things he does. Uh, so he's done some things that I really would like to do, but I don't I don't have the resources to do those things right now. Um, I'm I'm very conservative yeah. and 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 I've, that's worked well for me over the years. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. That's right. <laughs> that's right. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, this I mean is one thousand percent. Do you want to walk a little bit? Let's walk. All right. Let's walk. Let's let's put some dogs on the ground. All right. I'd like that. All right. Now we're back. I, 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 I had to stop, restart, and make sure I saved that part of recording. So. Out here, have you noticed a like a difference in uh have you noticed maybe a difference in what the birds are feeding on during certain times of year? Like do they prefer berries and insects earlier in the year or or, or um beggars lice later in the year? What are you noticing? Yeah. Oh yeah, it's I mean it's just it's your availability in the spring when everything's green. Yeah. You'll have your grasshoppers and crickets and all sorts of insects, chinch bugs, other things, little bugs. They're all feeding on that green stuff in the uh, in the woods, and the quail are all about it. Right. Uh, ragweed is just a fabulous uh, weed for for both quail and turkey uh, yeah. because it gives them nesting habitat. It's clean underneath, and they're protected from predators. Right. And so obviously those are the kinds of you want those that insect growth. Plus the insects are obviously 
I don't eat grasshoppers, but I hear they're real high in protein. I've heard a few people that yeah, like, yeah. there's a thing about chocolate grasshoppers? Yeah, that's yeah, a thing. Yeah, that's a thing. Never not, had not, it. Not for me. <laughs> but if you try it, you know, I, I'll try it if you try it. Get you first. Anyway, I, I know that the quail, when they're nesting and raising chicks, you want high protein available for them, and in those insects, that's critical. Okay. So, uh, the good thing about young planted pines, like we're riding, and we see this this little standoff to the right here, this uh, uh, I shoot three-year-old loblolly pine yep. plantation. There's a wild covey of quail right down there. Y'all found these birds? Didn't y'all find some? Oh, uh, we did in this area. Yeah. yeah. They were so, a little further up, so, but in this area. Too. So, you know, they're they're still here. They're still out there, and it's you got good cover. You've got this time of year. You've got your seeds. All the seeds that come off of these little plants and bushes and shrubs and and uh, partridge peas and other things. That's that's all yeah. all out there for them, and they can forage and find seeds everywhere. Yeah, out there, and it's just and it's good cover. It's not too dense. In a couple of years, it's going to be too dense to hunt. Yeah. But right now, it's it's pretty lovely. It's really nice. I forgot to mention this is the la the official last day of Georgia quail season. Yes, it is. This is the official last day, yeah. so I'm glad to be out here with you. Yeah, we're uh, we have uh, the, the quail preserve status wildlife, so we can we can actually do release birds up through through March. Right. So I've got a release bird on Tuesday. Okay. I'll, I'll pretty much stop this week. We're going to hunt Tuesday and Saturday, and I think I'm done. That's it. Yeah. Just kind of let them, don't interrupt the nesting. And
All right, Mr. Smith. I had a fun weekend with you this weekend. Did you? Yes. Um, for everybody listening, we went out to Hollywood Plantation together this weekend. Darrell went on a hunt with Mr. Duggan and Michael Duggan, and um, we just had a really good time. So can you guess what one of my favorite parts of the day was? What was that? Do you want me to guess? Or yeah, are I you, really actually... You really, okay, because you like to do that. And, uh, you know, and I, and I don't be wanting to guess, and, and so I got to clarify. So you actually want me to guess. Boy, if you don't guess. Okay. <laughs> All right. One of your favorite parts of the weekend. Um, probably watching Vegas lock up, like, real tight. Like, <laughs> running and stuff like that. Like, yes. watching him just, you know, be a bird dog. Yes, that was one of my favorite parts. That was that was the, the favorite. I think that was your favorite. It was the but favorite. We were actually referring to my favorite. <laughs> but one of my favorite parts of yesterday was talking to Mr. Duggan. We got to walk and talk. Um, Hollywood Plantation is a phenomenal piece of land. I mean, I was just so impressed. Just honestly, not only... Um, by the land itself, but of course just by the family. Mr. Duggan and his wife Ellen, you guys have they have they have a just a beautiful family. Um and I really enjoyed spending time with them. Um they were telling me I love one thing that that I did love about the plantation. So it's called Hollywood Plantation and different parts of it are named after different parts of California. So um, one part of the property is called Napa Valley and another one is Hollywood Boulevard. And um, Mr. Duggan and his son, they they know the the property like the back of their hands. Um, But anyway, so my favorite part was walking through um, through the through the woods with Mr. Duggan. We were just talking and getting to know one another. And I asked him a question. I asked him what is your biggest piece of life wisdom? And mind you, I'd only, I mean, of course, Darrell has his own relationship with them, but this is actually my first time meeting them in person. Um, but I was just very drawn in by his spirit. He's a very um, nice man and a very fun spirit. Um, and so I asked him that question and he referred to the 37th Psalm, um, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And he said that he allows that scripture to guide him and guide his decisions and to to guide him when he thinks about, you know, you know, how he proceeds in life. And um, as I was listening back to the recording of of this episode and you guys will hear it, um, he refers to, you know, why it is important for them to keep up that land. Because it's a lot of land. It's over 100 acres. How, long, how much land is it? Ooh, like 1,200 acres. Over 1,200. Oh, yeah. Look it's, at me. You're talking about over 100. Yeah, well <laughs> over 100. Well, yeah, well, I was right. <laughs> yes. Right. Yes. It's, it's, um, it's, I think it's like 1,200 or something like that. It's a yeah. massive piece. I think, you, obviously, you are correct. Um, but, you know... What would drive you to want to, I mean, and they really, really put love and labor and family and time into keeping, keeping it up and maintaining it. And it's, it's also spread out over way more than what we covered. Absolutely. So it's, it's kind of broken up, you know? Yeah. Um, and yes. So in, in, in the episode, he discusses how he wants 
he he his goals for maintaining it of of course are for his family and the and the natural things that you would think of but he also one thing that stuck out to me and honestly was so true of his character as I got to know him is that he said he wants to keep it up not only for the enjoyment of his family but for others to enjoy it and that honestly matches exactly what he told me his guiding scripture is delight yourself in the Lord. And when I think about honestly, the first thing I thought about when I started, um, his son, Michael told a really funny story about him. And uh, my first thought was, man, this guy's a lot of fun. Um, And I think when we think about um, legacy and we think about uh, uh, about making things better for our children and those that come behind us. You know, there's a lot of conversation about um, land and money and all the things that people generally think about. But what I love about Mr. Duggan's perspective is that he's considering how to sow joy into his bloodline. And if you ask me, there is no better I mean, there are lots of things. For me, I, I want to sow joy and peace into my bloodline. I think they're tenants to 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 sowing um, to sowing to sowing wealth into your bloodline. The traditional sense that I, I I referred to before. But one thing that really struck me is that he's intentional about sowing joy into his bloodline. He's intentional about forming ways to have generational fun. Like that term itself, I, I that really sat with me. I ended up journaling about it um and and was thinking about ways like how do you set up for for generational fun like what does that look like um and so that is what mr duggan is doing um one of the reasons why he feels so driven to keep up the land and keep it a beautiful place because it is fun i had a load of fun just being able to walk and talk and get to know him and i'm like man they can come out here with their family at any time and walk and talk and have some fun. So, you know, today, uh, tonight, whatever you're listening to this, whatever part of the day this hits you, I just want to talk about how important it is to have joy and how it is, it's it's a fruit of the spirit for a reason and how we can truly sow a pattern of joy into our lineage and into our bloodline. Think about ways that you can do that. You know, I always tell people, people ask me, you know, what are the things that I want for my children? And I'm very intentional about that list. And I think I will share that list and I'm going to um, add a few things to it. Um, I actually have um, a list that I look at every day about the intentional characteristics that I want to sow into my children. Um, and and fun is one of, one of them. I mean, what, why are we here? I mean, and Mr. Duggan and I had a good conversation about this. We're supposed to have fun, guys. Like, we're supposed to enjoy life and enjoy one another and enjoy, enjoy being alive, you know? And not to say that people don't go through things, um, because people do. Uh, Darrell and I have been through our fair share of things and I'm sure you have as well so I want to be very clear it's not my intention to disregard that but you know we should always find a way to choose joy and choose fun um, and wake up every day and say you know th- this is a beautiful day this this is the day that the Lord has made and I shall rejoice. I'm making a, a, a choice to look for joy, to look for reasons to appreciate. And it's to me, when you construct your mind and you arrange your mind in a way to search for joy, 
You have to like literally construct your mind, set your mind on things above. If you set your mind in a way that you're always looking for the good, you will you will automatic automatically have a more joyful experience. So um, as you all, I'm sure you're like, oh, you just started talking. But I hope that I've popped in a couple of times now. But if you if you don't know by now, I am Ashley Smith. I am Darrell's wife. And um this is my new segment, my little two cents that we're going to be adding to the podcast. Um, and my intention is that with these segments that we continue to grow in wisdom, understanding and honestly fun um, and that we just find ways to live in joyous expectancy, you know, together. So this has been the first installment, the first episode. Let's go with installment because it's just a little section. The first installment of Food for Thought. And I thank you guys for listening. All right, guys. So I hope y'all enjoyed that segment from my wife and I appreciate Ashley for hopping in there with us. Um, I, I want to keep keep that going, guys. This whole bird dog thing, man, it, it's it's something that should continue to uh to inspire folks, man. And, and, and I think, I hope we're doing that at least that's what I'm, I'm told. And also I'm getting a whole lot of, uh, good, really, you know, encouraging responses from folks that, uh, listened to the last episode that I had, uh, Ashley on turned down my, my headphones a little bit, just turned down a little bit. All right. I was talking real loud, but no, we really appreciate you guys, uh, and your feedback, on Ashley's wisdom and, and insights into some of the the things that we had her on um, and really discussing the the familial aspect of what it is that, that I do. Um, so that being said, guys, um, we thought it'd be kind of cool to get Ashley in here and, uh, you know, and, and, and just reveal the other side of what it is that I got going on. Cause she's, she's literally been my support system and um, I want to show you guys why, but the other thing that we have going on that I want to definitely touch on. Um, if you've been on my social media page, you probably have seen it already, but in 2022, I want to announce that I will be breeding my dog and to my buddy, Terry Chastain, who y'all have heard on here before, um, we'll be breeding uh, and to his dog, Big, uh, Melrose Big Rambler. So Big's pedigree on the sire line, um, he's out of Deacle's Sinbad son, which is out of Champion L. Hugh Sinbad. So, you know, you got quality on that end. And then on uh, Big's Dam's side, she, he's out of... Melrose Rebel Nail, who is out of champion Melrose Huckabuck, who, you know, and I, I think I think Terry said I think Terry gave y'all a little bit of a some insights on on Buck. Um, that dog was a really, really, really notable dog down here um, in the south. And I, I feel like in that other episode, he may have touched on it. But anyway, um, if not, you'll hear about Buck soon, regardless um, Big also won the 2020 Georgia, Florida Shooting Dog Handlers Club field trial, the Black Handlers Club. So that was another reason why I was really excited to breed and to him. And um, his current standings, Terry, appreciate this, but his current standings, 
Um, he was a top leading guide dog with 119 wild Bob White quail coveys in 30 hunts in the 2020-2021 season. Um, and he was a leading bird finder on two plantations in South Georgia. So, of course, you guys hopefully understand why it is that I'm trying to breed Anne to uh, to this dog. Um, Anne is out of Champion Miller's Blind Cider, and her dam is Riverton's Fun Seeking Annie. So you got a lot of Miller and Rebel blood going on in there in this conversation. Uh, this not conversation. This combination should be really, really, really dope. So. Um, you know, and that's that other piece of me bringing my own joy, like Ashley was talking about. Well, this is something that I'm really excited about. And, you know, all of this studying and, and reading and stuff that I'm doing, I'm hoping that, you know, my uh, my plans come out to be, you know, what what I anticipate them being. So anyway, um, outside of that, guys, I uh, I definitely want to put you guys on high alert for some upcoming film projects, both with um, Onyx Hunt and Project Upland, of course, this is half of the reason why I have been a little slow getting podcasts out just because my weekends have been full. Um, I've done some work with, um, you know, Orvis and, and, and doing some stuff with, uh, you know, some other good folks just coming down the pipeline. Um, so, with that being said, um, I'm I'm just excited to hopefully expand my role and and whatever the reach is intellectually or 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 conceptually or psychologically or philosophically whatever the the role is that I can fill with this podcast I want to do so um, because we are living a life of bird dogs and I think it's an extremely fulfilling one if you heard me talking on the Hal Herring um BHA podcast and Blast podcast recently um I was there and Hal and I got to talking about uh you know having bird dogs or or having a dog just really makes you human you know and that's something that I'm very very cognizant of and I and I want to examine more human characteristics um you know, that surround this lifestyle, like not necessarily human in the, the physical sense, but human in the, the metaphysical, like what does it mean, you know, that we're running these dogs and putting so much into so much of our lives into this, you know, at the end of the day, this was a notebook, you know, it, it was a, a, a compilation of thoughts and dreams and aspirations. And I want to make sure that, you know, the gun dog notebook as a platform is still investigating um, what it means to work and train and develop a bird dog and what it what it means to live in that life and what it means to make the most out of what you have. So all of that being said, um, we've just got a lot of really good things. Oh, and then guys, make sure I'm sure you've heard in other episodes. Um, and I'll keep outlining that we do have the Minority Outdoor Alliance uh, Bird Dog Scholarship that is still pending. I'm still, you know, still on the hunt. So if you want to know more information about that, um, give me a buzz. Darrell Smith at MinorityOutdoorAlliance.org. That's D-U-R-R-E-L-L. 
smith at minorityoutdooralliance.org. All right, guys. Well, that is the end of the episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, And stay tuned. We got some more good stuff coming up soon. All right. Talk to y'all soon. Later.